Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This week's episode is brought to you by The Story is a State of Mind School. Early registration is now open for The Story Intensive, an amazing course happening this fall, all about craft and brilliant writing, offered by the one and only Sarah Selecki, who you all know as a repeat guest on the show. Find out how you can sign up for the course and request me as your TA at carolinedonahue.com story. There will also be some group coaching calls for those who sign up through me and other fun stuff going on over there. So again, the link to check that out is carolinedonahue.com story. Okay, now on with the show. This is episode 54. And my guest today is Mangela Martin. She's a writer and editor with more than a decade of experience in print and online publishing. And she's also the author of Scratch, Writers, Money, and the Art of Making a Living. Prior to writing the book, she founded Scratch Magazine, which was around from 2013 to 2015. And it was an online journal of interviews and information about writing and money. And she created the blog, Who Pays Writers?, She's also the managing editor of Zoetrope All Story. I know you're going to be, love this episode because as we've discovered over the past number of months, uh, writing and money is a hot topic and Mangela has so much to offer in this department. So enjoy this episode. Hey, Mangela, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, there's so much. I have like all these things I want to talk to you about because I think money, obviously, and making a living as a writer is a topic that's been such a taboo for anyone to consider for such a long time. So I guess I want to say, how did you first start to kind of get connected with that as a topic you were interested in? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, I think I've always sort of been generally interested in the money behind anything. <laughs> you know, there's that old journalist saying, follow the money, which someone probably told me when I was very young and I, it stuck. But I think as a writer, um, you know, I started the blog Who Pays Writers in 2012 now. Wow. Yeah. Five years. And that was when I really started like focusing more deeply on this specific topic. Um, I had been freelancing for a while doing a mix of journalistic work as well as copywriting and like, you know, other types of free freelance writing and editing. And I had started pitching some articles to some places and then having people say, great, yes, we want the article. And then I would say, great, what are your rates like? And they would say, oh, we can't pay you. <laughs> and I, 
I was shocked to find that to be the case, partially because I had worked in journalism in the 1990s. Um, and then I had been sort of out of that industry for a while after that. I worked in nonprofit arts and then I did a variety of like crappy service jobs here and there. And so that hadn't been the case. Uh, it hadn't been the, my experience in the 90s. And then it became my experience, you know, 10 years later. And I was like, what is going on? Um, I soon learned that other people were having difficulties sort of just knowing what was out there in terms of money, you know, knowing which publications paid, which didn't, um, et cetera. And so I started this blog, Who Pays Writers, which is an anonymous crowdsourced list of writing rates. Very informal. I call it gossip because I don't verify any of the reports. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, honestly, in five years, I've only had, like, two or three complaints from editors. Everyone is, is pretty cool about it. That's um, pretty good. I would say that's a very high commendation. Yeah, and editors will sometimes contact me and be like, I don't think this rate is accurate. And I'm like, you know what? Like, the best way to counter that is to tell all your other writers to submit their accurate rates <laughs> and, like, bump up your average <laughs> on the website. Generally, I just don't think that, you know, people would lie about that stuff like writers would yeah. lie about stuff. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of became a thing, uh, somewhat surprisingly to me. And then, you know, I got a lot of people saying like, I love hearing the numbers. The numbers are awesome. Cause the website is just numbers. It's like this much for this many words, this genre, it took me this long to get paid. But I heard a lot of people having conversations about it online and in person and saying, you know, like, Numbers are great, but I want more context. Like, I want to know sort of what the story is behind this rate. And from that, I started writing more on the topic. Um, and then I realized that there was a seemingly endless amount of ways you could address this topic, um, which is what inspired me to start Scratch Magazine, which was a digital magazine, an online magazine. It was paywalled with a subscription. Um, and Scratch was sort of that context. Like, it was both sort of lifestyle as well as how-to stuff about this weird relationship between being a writer and being a person who has to also make a living. And from that, um, Scratch didn't last uh, economically, but from that, the book came. Um, so I, I guess the short version of, uh, of the answer to your question is um, it came very organically because I wanted these answers to. I was also struggling with this issue of like, how do I deal with the money stuff being a creative person in this economy, in this world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I will say I'm always interested in the longer answer. I never want the short answer. So I'm glad you <laughs> gave me both. Well, I can give you both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious a little bit about, well, not just a little bit. I am very interested in both the when you talk about the context of the numbers, are you talking both about why they're paying that much and what the reality is for the publication and what the, limited, the limitations are around the publication financially or about, I feel like there's this whole other conversation that I'm really into having about how people value written content in this day and age where yeah. it is possible to get so much of it for free. So, and maybe those two things are related. Completely related. And yeah, all of the above. I mean, I think the thing that emerged when I started talking with other writers and doing these projects um, was that for any given industry, like writers knew 
what I would call far less about the economics of their own industry than you would imagine any worker in any given industry would. Most people sort of know how the money flows, even if they're not at the top rung of that ladder. Um, and with media, journalism, book publishing, all sort of, you know, the publishing related industries, I found that writers had no idea. Like people to this day are being graduated from like MFA programs and I will talk to their classes as a speaker and I will talk about like, you know, pitching essays to publish and publications and I will have someone raise their hand and be like, what's a pitch? What's a pitch? Yeah, <laughs> that's happened to me several times. And they're graduating? Yeah, and they're, and they're MFA students. Oh, wow. And so while I, while I do think that like MFA programs have value in terms of it is important just to focus deeply on craft if you want to be a literary writer or a journalist, I also have experienced and seen firsthand that like, you know, people are gradu being graduated out of these programs with no idea of what it might actually be like to work in this business. And it is a business, you know, like publishing is not a charity. Um, it may be a struggling business at times, but it is a business. Someone's making money. So I think that those, the way the money flows in any given industry is something that if you work in that industry, you need to know if you want to be sort of empowered around your own work and if you want to ask for what you deserve. And so I think that is very much linked with the idea of sort of how we value creative work and writing specifically in our larger economy. <laughs> um, you know, we live in a world in which like, if you're a writer, like what you happen to do for a living is not valued economically the same way as some other things are. And that's not to say it's the hardest job in the world, it's definitely, you know, I always joke, I'm like, writing is, is not coal mining. But on the other hand, like, writers are constantly being exploited and undervalued. And I'm very curious about why that is. And I'm very curious about, like, how writers can work against that. Yeah, I am too. And I, I'm curious, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go really meta right now. Yeah. I'm wondering it seems like humanities related graduate programs kind of are this ivory tower kind of bubble because my ma is in psychology and nobody mm -hmm. ever talked about money either and you see people who've gone through kind of social work and and psychology degrees as whether as well as art degrees and photography degrees and all this stuff and nobody tells them how to run a business either and those are the professions you all see having trouble Whereas mm, interesting. I think medicine and law and MBAs talk plenty about money and they all end up making good money, hopefully. So, did, so when you were a psychology grad, like no one ever was like, okay, here are the different kinds of jobs you might do with your degree and like here are some things about those jobs? No. And if you ask... It's crazy to me. <laughs> it is. It's crazy to me too. I mean, I remember asking too, like how are we supposed to build a practice and mm -hmm. how are we just supposed to survive doing this? And you were just basically supposed to be okay with doing your 3,000 hours of work to get right. licensed in California for virtually nothing. And Which that was so ultimately why I left because I said, I, this doesn't add up for me. This isn't possible. Yeah. Um, and I just, I see this with writers and any kind of content creator um, that if you don't talk about money at a certain point, it's sort of looked at as gross 
or weird, or you're kind of a gold digger if you want to make money at these things and you're just supposed to do it for the art of it, which was sort of how it was looked at as a, as therapy. Like you're just supposed to love helping people. Right. Yeah. You just want to help. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of class stuff in there, you know, I think ultimately what happens when you have any sort of field in which that is the prevailing attitude is you have a field full of people who have economic privilege because those are the people who can afford to sort of just figure it out on the way because they don't rely on it as their primary source of income for whatever reason, you know, whether they have family money or they just have a lot of support in their life or they have a spouse or they have, a, you know, who knows, you know, and I say that being a person who like, I live with a person who has a full-time job, not in the arts and he pays half the rent, you know, um, like we're all supported in many ways by our community, but like, I do think that becomes a real problem when you're talking about the stories that are getting told. The way that I always look at it is like, if only certain people can afford to be the storytellers, then what stories are they choosing to tell? What stories aren't getting told? Uh, and I, I'm sure you could apply that to like a therapy practice too. Like I think, you know, it's, it matters that <laughs> certain professions are sort of by virtue of being somewhat dysfunctional financially are, are sort of, you know, seen as the uh, stomping ground of a certain, I'm not going to say elite, but a certain type of privileged person. Um, and, and, you know, specifically people with economic privilege. Yeah. And if we're looking at, I mean, I can't help this year, but bringing things back to politics, <laughs> I cannot help it. But then you look at, and, and we're all sort of on both sides of this large divide that has sort of been there all along, but we've never really looked at it in the same way of saying like, how did this happen that we all don't know what different people are going through? And then you look at a situation like this where only certain people can afford to write books or write articles, then yeah, there's a possibility that you'll end up with a population that's deeply checked out on a large portion of people's experience within that society. Sure. I mean, the journalist Sarah Smarsh, um, who's in the Scratch book, like her entire career is basically that. Um, she comes from a working class background and she's she does some amazing writing on that topic. And she recently did a piece, I think it was for The Guardian, um, about that exact sort of divide, divide specifically in journalism. But I also think it's like part of what I'm interested in with this whole project is also bringing like a little bit of historical perspective and levity to the situation. Like I do think that the way that work is evolving and the way that our economy is operating, like I do think it's, it's harder now than it has been to do creative professions. Say for example, you know, you take the old model of like having a day job and then writing on the side if you want to like write a novel or something. Right. Like I remember a time in my lifetime and I'm 40 years old, like where it actually was possible to work less than full time and do other stuff on the side. And part of that was because I was young and I didn't care about being poor. And I was like, whatever, I don't need to eat good food. Or, you know, part of it was because it was actually possible to have a job that paid your rent without working 60 hours a week. Rents were lower. Mostly rents were lower. <laughs> I can just <laughs> stop the list at that. Um, certainly in big cities. Now it's like, I'm sitting and talking to you now and like I'm probably just like reflexively going to pick up my phone and check my work email while we're talking, um, you know, <laughs> um, 
I, I turned like my I phone think, off completely to, I, I'm not to prevent. That, just <laughs> <by the> way. <laughs> no, I was worried someone was going to call me from my end. So yeah, yeah you have exactly. to, you have to put boundaries up in place with those things. Yeah. And so like work is taking over life in a way that I think is, you know, unique to this time and moment. And a lot of it has to do with technology and the sort of like, uh, sort of technology economy. But I also think in the book, there's a great essay by Colin Dickey, um, where he talks about the patronage economy in Greece among Greek poets. And he talks about the first poet who asked to be paid by the word for his poetry instead of just being like some rich guy's personal poet, the patronage system. Um, this poet was like, no, I think you should pay me by the word. And, um, and everyone was like, exactly what you sort of just said to me a couple of minutes ago. Like everyone was like, oh, that's not classy. That is greedy. Like what avarice, how dare you sort of equate this beautiful artistic thing with a specific monetary value. And to this day, his reputation is largely one of being like a greedy guy who wrote for money. And his actual poetry is not the first thing that people know about him. And so I think that, well, it's true that like it's hard now. It's true that like this has always been a hard thing and it's always been a tricky conversation. And I love sort of getting those stories and that perspective because I think especially when a lot of like, well, I can say at least for journalism and for literary publishing, which are the two sort of areas that I'm most deeply rooted in. A lot of the conversations that happen, happen online and, and, and our cultural memory online can be very, very short. And so I've been talking about this topic long enough now, which I should say is only in five years. So not that long in the span of things, but I've been talking about this topic for five years and I have seen sort of every few months sort of like the conversation, you know, something controversial happens and someone gets offered an offensive rate and then publicizes it or tweets about it or, you know, something happens and then everyone sort of erupts in this passionate war about, um, about writers and pay. And well, I think that's all natural and great. And that's like the cycle of how things work. I do think that there is a bit of lack of cultural memory where people are like, this has never happened before. And I think it's really important (laughs) for us to be like, actually, this has always been happening. And, you know, I am as horrified as, any sort of lefty by the current political situation. But I also think that like it has proven comforting to me to actually also have a historical take on that. And sort of, I've been reading old letters by writers under um, oppressive political regimes and, (laughs) and um, weirdly heartening to be like, Oh yeah. Like shit's been fucked up for a really long time. Yeah. And they they got through that, I guess. (laughs) It's helpful to read about other people who've gotten through difficult things that feel similarly serious. It is. And that is, you know, I think the underlying sort of like uh, attraction of this project, of of this book, is that like it is heartening. And and the number one response that I've had from readers has been like, I'm so glad that this exists because I don't feel so so alone. And I'm like, wow, that like that honestly wasn't, the reaction that I expected, you know, and it's, it's, it's very common. And it's not even like, Oh, I learned from it. Or, Oh, like, you know, it applies directly to my profession. It's like, I felt alone, because I was worried about money all the time, or I was thinking about these conflicts between like art and commerce in my own life. And like, then I found out that everybody else is thinking about it, too. And I don't feel so alone. Yeah, I think that is important. I'm thinking of, this is a weird example. But 
correct me if I'm wrong, but it was my understanding that the reason that um, both a lot of the Russian novelists and Dickens were so long was because they were paid sort of as serialized writing. Have you heard this? I don't know that's true about the Russians. Like, I just, I haven't heard that about the Russians. I I wouldn't be surprised. Um, it's true about Dickens. And actually that essay I was talking about in Scratch, Colin talks about that. Okay. Um, like, and, the, and it's interesting. And as Colin says in his essay, he's like that, you know, he found out that Dickens was paid by the word when he was like probably, I forget, like junior high or high school, right? And he talks about how that like totally wrecked his perception of great literature because he was like, is the reason that like great literature is shaped the way it is, i.e. long, just because these guys were getting paid to turn out copy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to me that nobody thinks, oh, Dickens was some hack who was just turning out as many words as he could versus this Greek poet who's sort of been slammed by it. it it's almost like, as you were talking about new things coming out and that our cultural memory isn't that long, it's yeah. it's interesting to me that it really depends on the context of the society and that the society can dictate what's acceptable in terms of asking for pay. And I mean, honestly, honestly like it also depends on how good of a writer you are. You know, True. like Dickens was really good. If he sucked, we wouldn't remember him. There were a million serial novelists who we probably don't know their work now in the Victorian era, you know, um, maybe not a million, but... There are plenty of Victorian no novelists who have faded to obscurity who are probably just as prolific as Dickens. So that's what makes the conversation so interesting is that like is deeply personal and deeply subjective and it's very hard to sort of draw these larger conclusions. But I'm really interested in trying to draw some of those larger conclusions, even if they maybe aren't perfect, because I think that that can teach us a lot. It's complicated, you know. Well, I think everything interesting is. Yeah. And well, I want to talk a little bit about the process of actually creating the book because sure, yeah. your list of contributors reads like a who's who of modern literature. I mean, you've got Cheryl Strayed, Roxane Gay, Jonathan Franzen, Susan Orlean. I mean, you could just go through the whole Leslie Jameson, you know, people who are both like old standards to, you know, new big deal coming up kind of types. And how was it assembling that group and actually executing this project? It's a great list. I, I agree. I'm really like, it's basically, it's just writers I think are awesome is the common thing there. Um, <laughs> but the way it actually was assembled. So I already had, so some of the pieces in the book, the interviews in the book and a couple of the essays were from Scratch Magazine, the project I had done before. Okay. Um, so I had like a small, you know, grouping already of writers who I knew I wanted to 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 print like those interviews, like Jonathan Franzen and Cheryl Strayed and Roxane Gay and all those folks. And, you know, the way I had gotten those interviews was honestly by thinking of people who I thought might have a fascinating take on the topic. And a lot of times just like asking them, a few of the people came to me through personal connections, but if it, like several of them didn't like. Susan Orlean, I think I just emailed like the info address on her website. Roxanne, I like, we followed each other on Twitter, but we don't know each other personally. So I, I think I found her that way. You know, there's, um, there's a, a good deal of just like basic re reporting that happens in, in contacting people, um, like just figuring out what their email address is and asking them. And everyone sort of 
you know, was really interested in the topic and found it to be uh, refreshing and wanted to talk about it, uh, which I think just goes to show that, like, even if you're Cheryl Strayed, you're still like, whoa, the money thing's crazy. I want to talk about it, you know. <laughs> so that so I had this like core list, basically. Um, and then I had the idea for the book and I put together essentially like a dream table of contents. And I just I, I wanted to hit you know, folks who are writing in somewhat different genres. I wanted to, I wanted, it was really important to me to include folks who actually aren't famous yet, or maybe never will be famous. Like, I think that there's a lot of sort of, for writers who are entering a career, like there's a lot of sort of like, I want to be like X famous novelist, or I want to be like X famous journalist. But the reality is that like a lot of writers are very successful and have careers and you've never heard of them. And so I, I was interested in that, that middle ground as well. Um, and then some of the people are just folks who I kind of came up with in like the current era and I know that they're great writers and I know that they're going to have books out in the next couple of years. Um, even if they maybe don't already have a book out now, you know, like Megan O'Connell, people like that, who I just read online and we became friends online. And I was like, Megan, will you please write an essay about motherhood and being a writer? And she was like, of course, you know, and then during the time that she was writing that essay, she sold, she sold a book about it and her book will be out next year, you know? So there's a lot of sort of just like timing and coincidence that goes into assembling a book because it takes a couple years. So I wrote, I'm trying to think back on how I did it. I actually wrote out a list. Like I want like Roxane Gay on this topic. I want so-and-so on this topic. And I just thought, so I, I, you know, I read the work of these writers and it was writers who I thought they were great and I was interested in some way in their career. And they sort of spanned a gamut of genres and some were writing online, some were doing books. Um, I paid big attention to gender and racial diversity. And I had this list of like what the book would look like if I could have anything I wanted. And then I just went down the list, starting with the hardest people first, <laughs> the people who I thought were least likely to say yes first and tried to get them. And, you know, I actually, I think a crucial thing with putting together an anthology that I learned about the process of putting together Scratch was that, so, you know, with any nonfiction book, you write a book proposal, which includes a full table of contents and an outline and a couple sample chapters and a bunch of other stuff too. So I went into the proposal with all the writers on board. Like I, I took like a month before I wrote the proposal and I wrote all these people emails and I was like, I'm doing this book. It's in proposal stage. If it sells, it'll be, you know, out probably around this time, you know, 2017. And would you be, in, would you like, be okay, like, would you be interested in this? And can I put you on the proposal? And so some, you know, some folks who said yes to that, like ended up not being in the book, but very few, there was actually very little turnover, actually. That's amazing. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, how big was the dream list? And then how big was the final list by comparison? Uh, I mean, the dream list wasn't too big, because I knew it was going to be a book, like I didn't go too far, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I had been doing this type of thing for Scratch Magazine, so I had some experience in sort of thinking about the topic and figuring out how to, like, put together a writer with a topic. I should also say that, like, I didn't assign everyone their topic. Like, a lot of people came up with their own topics through conversation, you know. It was it was a mix. I'm, try I'm trying to – I wonder if I have that spreadsheet, if I could just open it right now. 
Yeah, you anyway, didn't have to name any names. It was like, probably this like, jerk said no. No, no one was a jerk. I can honestly say that. Even the people who said no were really nice. I guess the people who never wrote back, maybe they were less nice, but whatever. The original list was probably twice as long as the final list. That's pretty good. I mean, there are 33 writers in Scratch, so yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot. So then how is the editing process? So you've got 33 writers, then you've got that, which means you have 33 pieces that you've got to wrangle, basically, to get yeah. into a book. It was a lot of work. You know, because I had a few already, like, in the can, things that were, were reprint, you know, that knocked it down to, like, I don't know, maybe 25 pieces to deal with. But even the stuff that had already been published, I went back through and sort of re-edited it and... Um, you know, in the case of the interviews, I actually went back to the transcripts and re-edited. So it was a lot of work. It was so much work. Oh, my God. So many emails. <laughs> I can only imagine. It just kind of makes your brain want to explode. Yeah. And so, you know, I had like a little Excel sheet where I tracked everyone's deadlines and stuff. And I just took them one at a time. I mean, I sent out a batch of assignments and I staggered some of the deadlines, like folks who I thought might flake. I gave earlier deadlines. <laughs> um, oh, the truth comes out. Nice. I definitely give false deadlines when I'm working as an editor, like hot tip. Um, uh, I've done it too. I, I was editor of a publication and I did the same. Yeah. I mean, I give myself some wiggle room, you know, because people are always going to ask for an extension and then you can give it to them and not be screwed. Yeah. Then you get to be nice, not a big jerk. Exactly. And because you're editing 25 other pieces at the same time, you're actually like, that's fine because I don't have time to deal with this this week anyway. <laughs> um, so, you know, some people it was really cut and dry. Like some people I was like, yo, will you write about this topic? And they were like, sure, here's a draft. And I was like, this looks great. Just a few things. That was it. You know, other people, we really sort of worked on developing it, whether it was like figuring out the right topic together or maybe there were drafts that got thrown out and then new drafts. You know, I tend to edit pretty, you know, I edit, like I, I dig in. Um, I'm not just sort of like a copy editor editor. And so I, w I would also warn people that I am that kind of editor. Because <laughs> I think in this day and age, like some people don't edit that heavily. And I think it's important to let your writers know that you, you are a substantive editor. And then, yeah, I mean, just take it one at a time. You know, there, there were times I just, I just did a lot of work. It's, it's just a pedal to the metal work as they say I'm trying to remember like how long that period of time was exactly uh, you're, you're like psychic about my questions <laughs> well I think this is interesting too just because I like editing I'm right there with you I've got my right red pen right here at the ready yeah. at all times I mean I, I I worked on I think I finished the proposal in like April or May of 2015 god yeah it sold. There was some like time in the summer where everyone in publishing is not at their desks. So it took a little while to sell. Um, my agent and I worked on it. She took it out. I think it took like a month to sell maybe. I sold it in August of 2015. Mm -hmm. And then, I, okay, I remember now, I gave people really fast deadlines. I was like, have it to me by November 1st. And also considering that these are like two to 4,000 word essays, which, you know, if you're writing a two to 4,000 word essay for like 
an online publication, like your turnaround is going to be way faster than that. So I didn't actually want to give people too long because I didn't want it to fall off their to-do lists. And there was like October, November, the stragglers. Um, and a lot of people turned in stuff early. So like I was able to stagger some of the deadlines. So I was editing while other people were still writing. And so I was basically working constantly that whole six months. And I think I compiled the first, like, I think I turned in the book, like, probably in December or January. Yeah, wow. December 16. So it was fast for, for a book. And then the book was edited by the publisher as well. Um, that's sort of an interesting thing is like with an anthology, because like I'm the editor of the book, but then I had an editor also. It sounds like the title of another book, The Editor's Editor. <laughs> the Editor's Daughter. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> so, you know, there was a couple rounds of editing with Simon & Schuster, which honestly, like were not that heavy. Like I did most of the editing prior to that. And then there was copy editing. And at a certain point, around copy editing, I told people, I was like, here are the copy edits. You're not going to see this again. Um, so one thing is I did it, I did to save myself a lot of headaches is I didn't run proofs by all the contributors. I told them, this is the last time you're going to see this. I'll let you know if anything substantial changes. But other than that, like, this is your last chance. I'm not showing you proofs. So I think that saved me a lot of emails. <laughs> yeah, at, at, by that point, I think you'd probably everybody's ready to have less email. Yeah, and things were ship shape. So like, it wasn't a problem, you know, um, like not that much changed once it was in production. Yeah. And then, you know, usually it takes about a year for a publisher to make a book. Um, and it came out in January 2017. Yeah. And there it was. So did reading whatever, because of course, you're reading all of this as you're editing it. And it's a different kind of reading as an editor. But was there anything that kind of burst open that you learned about the money writing relationship that you hadn't thought about before in reading everything that everyone sent back in? That's a good question. Um, well, I think one thing that I learned in the process of editing these stories is that I had to definitely coax some writers to like dig a little deeper in the topic. Like I think there were definitely some some initial drafts that I saw that were sort of like writing around the topics, mm. I guess I would say. Um, and there was definitely a process of editing of like sort of getting people past that point of fear and being like, no, like this is the space where we talk about this. Like we need to actually talk about it, you know. And so that was interesting, just like learning that that's like a constant process, even for these really amazing professional writers, like even someone who's like, yes, I want to write an essay about this, like Ben might be afraid even after that. And so really learning, I learned immense amounts as an editor through that process, you know, editing personal essays on a topic that's kind of tricky and um, having to like coax some stuff out of people and, and get kind of real with some people. It was great. And they were awesome and wonderfully responsive uh, pretty much across the board. And so I think... That was interesting. I think um, even very rich and famous writers are really insecure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jennifer Weiner's essay kind of blew me away because, like, I had asked her to do it almost as a joke, knowing that Franzen was in the book and knowing that they had this, like, famous PR feud. Um, not as a joke because, like, I respect Jen and, like, I think she's, like, doing really interesting, pro provocative things with her nonfiction writing. And... Um, but like, you know, I was like, yeah, do you want to do it? And she was like, yes, which I hadn't expected. And I had kind of asked her to like basically rework a talk of hers that I saw, thinking like I didn't want to take too much of her time. 
she's very famous and busy. And she came back and was like, what if I write this like totally like devastating, emotional, revealing essay about like my childhood issues with my father and how it's about money. And I was like, great. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) So she was not one of the ones who was afraid. She was very generous with her personal history um, for being a person who's like a multi-million best-selling author. Um, And her essay, you know, is definitely one that surprised me in that way and just being like, oh, like she's very commercially successful and she still craves validation, you know, um, and she still craves like a certain critical validation from the literary world. And that's what her essay is about. And I found it to be really interesting and really sort of touchingly honest. I think the other main like, I don't know, there's so many essays I could go into detail and like a bunch of them, but I guess I'll go back to Sarah Smarsh's essay in which Sarah talks about going into debt to give up a pretty solid job. Which, uh, Well, her essay is about giving up a teaching job to be a freelance journalist. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Like giving up a tenured track teaching job to be a freelance journalist. And she also talks about how she was the first person in her family to go to college. And she went into a lot of debt to get her, her master's degree at Columbia. And you know, I come from a lower middle class background and and I'm always just like taught like, oh, don't go into debt, don't go into debt. That's the golden rule, right? We don't always follow it, but like that's what I sort of came up believing that you should avoid debt. And for Sarah, coming from a rural working poor background, like for her, that debt was actually was an investment. Like for her, like she had to go in great debt and for her, it, it actually wasn't that big of a deal to take the risk of taking on that debt because it was her only chance. And so she, we had a lot of conversations throughout the creation of her essay about sort of like the kinds of financial risks that people take w- with their job and with debt and with money and how people from different class backgrounds like actually risk is defined very differently in different class situations. Um, so for her, like to me, like going, getting an MFA at Columbia would be very risky financially, but to her who grew up far poorer than I did, that's actually less risky because it's, it's getting her to Columbia and she's never been to college before. So that kind of blew my mind. And I'm still thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, I can see why it's like the use of money and what it means and, and what it means in connection to someone's life. Those are huge topics. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important to talk like across class backgrounds about this stuff because like people have different assumptions about what in is and is not the right way to sort of be about money, you know. And those assumptions are deeply rooted to where we come from and what our where our parents come from and what our parents' lives were like. And um it's important to sort of talk to people who come from different class backgrounds so that you can understand that like there are different ways of looking at it. It makes you a lot less likely to judge other people's decisions. And I think that's something that's important about the book and this kind of conversation anyway, is it's like it's making writing and, and being a writer the common ground rather than an economic you know, baseline that's defining mm-hmm. the conversation. Like, what are you, what, what's most important to you or how are you willing to relate to money in order to be a writer or what does that take? 
yeah, and that takes different things for different people, you know. Exactly. So I think there's this sort of common, like, oh, that's, like, very upper-middle-class intellectual, like, sort of the starving artist persona. And while there's a lot that I sort of love about that persona, like, I also think that it's important to recognize that that's not the only perspective. And most writers aren't, not all writers are coming from that place, you know. Like, some, some people actually have not had enough food in their lives and I want to hear like what those people are coming at the profession of writing you know how those people are coming at the profession of writing also yeah and you know I think as long as we are holding up this ideal of the starving artist it seems to me even having that ideal feels it smacks of privilege because it's it's held by people who haven't really been starving in a way like oh that seems sort of romantic to like live in your garret, like, you know, Victor Hugo yeah, or very, something. It's very La Bohème, yeah. Right, versus people who are like, no, I've actually done that and it really sucks. And actually that makes me not want to be a writer at all if that's what's required of me. And so I worry, like, is somebody going to be completely alienated from the profession who might be an incredible writer and have a lot to say um, because of this stereotype that's out there? Yeah, I mean, it's a stereotype because it's true, as all stereotypes are, because it's in some senses true, you know, it comes from somewhere. Um, but like, it is a stereotype. And that's not actually like, I mean, my whole thing is like, let's, act, let's just talk about what we're actually talking about here. Like, there's so much sort of like, both ego and like fantasy involved in this profession. Like, there's so much romance, right? And I firmly believe and maybe I'm a weird optimist, but like, I firmly believe that we can keep the romance and actually like be more pragmatic about what we've chosen to do with our lives. I totally agree. I also love that you've mentioned spreadsheets several times during this conversation. So <laughs> we just super tell... ironic because I hate spreadsheets. I'm a oh, total really? like typical liberal arts person who hates math and forms. Um, but you know, they work. <laughs> yeah, they do. I mean, I, I kind of love them for their, their clarity, but because sometimes clarity is nice in the midst of creative chaos, but <laughs> I'm interested. So having, you know, started Scratch Magazine and then Scratch Magazine being closed for financial reasons and then writing the book, what do you see as sort of your next stage in this conversation? Is this a topic you want to continue in this way or are, what are you looking at doing going forward? I absolutely am continuing this topic. I mean, you know, I have this book in the world and I'm standing by it and behind it beyond the book launch. Um, I've, I've actually just recently done some talking at, at universities, like an MFA programs, that sort of thing. So I'm continuing to sort of talk and work on the topic. I'm continuing to write about it when I write about it. And I'm continuing to run Who Pays Writers. I, at the moment, I don't have plans to do like a sequel. Mm-hmm. Anthologies don't make any money. So like, um, um, and I think they, they are great in other ways, but they don't make me any money. Um, so I don't have plans to do a sequel, which I'm not sure how my agent feels about that. But um, I am doing a completely impractical thing and I'm writing a novel, Ooh. which is what I wanted to do in the first place. Um, I love it. How is yeah. that going? So it's going. That's all, that's all I know. I'm writing it. That's amazing. I'll let you know. So this is a novel that I like sort of started just before the scratch book happened and then put it aside for much of that time. So I'm coming back to it. Um, and it will be my first novel. So for me, you know, 
it's interesting, like becoming a quote expert on this topic was something that evolved very naturally. And it wasn't something I really set out to do. Um, I think I just ended up having some combination of like a good angle, a sharp eye, asking the right questions and like luck and timing. But that said, like, it's been a really interesting lesson for me um, in sort of just going with the thing that's doing well. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us do lots of different things in our careers. And, you know, I certainly didn't set out to be the person who's like the money and writing girl. And in many ways, I'm perhaps not well suited to it. Like, I don't like spreadsheets, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not good with money. <laughs> um, I can't give you financial advice and I will not give you financial advice. I actually hate giving advice in general. I think it's kind of silly. Um, so in some ways, you know, I'm perhaps not the right person for this job, but that's actually, I think what makes me good at it is that, you know, I'm not like, Oh, here are the top 10 tips for how to make a living as a writer. Cause that's kind of bullshit. But it has been very interesting to me, like in terms of my career, it's been hard at times. And I've been like, but I don't want to be the person who's editing an anthology as my first book. Like I want my first book to be me, you know, I want it to be my novel or I want it to be my nonfiction thing or whatever. And I want me to be the only writer in it, um, which is I think what we all want. Right. And it's been kind of wonderful actually to let go of that. Like, imagined perfection of what a writing career looks like for myself, actually, and just be like, you know what, this is an awesome project, and I'm really good at it, and I'm rolling with it, and it's been great. It's been nothing but wonderful and rewarding, and it, and I am confident that it will continue to be great for my career. Yeah. So I guess it's that whole thing where you're like, you know, say yes to the thing that's working. But that said, I do write other stuff, and I'm resuming working on those other things. Some of them are not fiction also. So, sorry, I'm actually working on two books now. Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm working on my novel, and I actually have already contracted to write a book. I'm writing a gardening book with my father, who is a somewhat renowned organic gardener. Awesome. So totally random topic once again, <laughs> but it all makes sense. My dad uh, runs an apprenticeship program for organic farmers, and he is a wonderful writer. And has always wanted to do a book, and so uh, we decided to work on one together. And uh, we've sold it to Ten Speed Press. Oh, nice! And it'll be out—I don't know, maybe 2019 in a while. So I guess the the short answer to the question, "What next?" is that I continue to be a generalist and do lots of different kinds of things, which I wouldn't—I wouldn't have it any other way. No, I also I... Have a full-time job. <laughs> right. I know. So you're, you're kind of proving, disproving your statement earlier that not only can you now have a full-time job and write a novel, you can have a full-time job, write a novel and do a gardening book with your dad. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like I'm stressed as hell, but yeah, you can do those things. My full-time job is very understanding and very flexible schedule wise. So that's, you can have a certain type of full-time job. I don't talk a lot about my day job um, because it's like a dream job and it's completely non-exemplary and nothing that anyone should hold up as an example because I'm it like only, it's the only job like it that exists. <laughs> <laughs> it's a unicorn. So like, like do what I'm doing because like no one can do what I'm doing except me. And I feel very lucky to have it. But I'm, I'm the managing editor for Zoetrope All Story, which is the mm -hmm. art and fiction magazine that Francis Ford Coppola publishes. Right. 
Um, and the staff of the magazine is two people, me and the editor, Michael Way. And it's a uh, print-only quarterly. Right. And we often joke that we have a job from the 1960s. It's like us and the guys at the Paris Review have this job, and that's about it. And it's wonderful. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah, and I absolutely love it. And it's also nice because, you know, my half of the editorial team is more involved in production and uh, managing our guest artists and that sort of thing. And so while it is a publishing job, um, it exercises like a slightly different muscle for me. And that's nice too, because then I don't feel like when I come home and write at night, I feel like I have, I have the right muscles left for that. That's important. Yeah. Although I don't really write at night. I write in the morning. <laughs> but it's good not to feel depleted at the end of the day with all of that going on. Yeah. And I mean, also, like, I think part of having a full-time job and, job and juggling other projects is just, like, being patient, you know? I've known that I wanted to do this gardening book for several years. I've known that I'm doing a, this novel for several years, and it'll probably be several more years before those projects come to fruition, you know, because I can really only spend maybe eight hours a week writing if I'm lucky. And that's just reality, but that doesn't mean I'm going to not do it. It just means it takes me a little longer. Yeah, that's okay. It'll be, it sounds like it'll be worth it in the end. Yeah. And like, I definitely freak out and I'm like, I want to finish it now. I need more time. And then my partner's like, remember, you have five jobs. You're doing great. I'm like, all right, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely are. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk so in depth about this process and, and putting Scratch together. And I hope um, we'll have links to everything that you talked about in the show notes and everybody should get the book because it's a very, very important topic. And I think you'll learn a lot from reading it. Awesome. I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I'm so glad we met uh, at the reading. I know. It was great. Everybody go to book readings. You meet cool people. Yeah, true. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.